Hello, everyone, and welcome to Consumer Watchdog's Rage for Justice Report. I'm your host, Carmen Balber, Executive Director of Consumer Watchdog, and this is actually part two of my conversation with Dr. Michelle Goodwin, who is the Chancellor's Professor at UC Irvine School of Law and the founder and director of the Reproductive Justice Initiative, which is focused on women's legal and human rights. Um, now, in part one, uh, we started discussing the uprising going on right now uh, with people of all colors marching in the streets against racism, raising up their voices. And Michelle had uh, just begun a discussion of the heroes over time uh, who fight racism in all its manifestations. And we'll pick up our conversation there. One of those inspirational fighters is is someone uh, who introduced the two of us, um, a, a man who uh, lost his wife in childbirth um, at a time when uh, African-American moms are dying at mm-hmm. three to four times the rate of uh, white mothers in childbirth um, and experienced one of those tragedies uh, that tears at your soul, but is turning um, that terrible experience into um, a fight for change uh, to 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 protect mothers of the future and 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 I, it's his I think his his wife's story is is one of those uh, stories of four mothers that hopefully don't get lost uh, as well, uh, right. the history of this time gets told that's right so Kira Johnson I'm, I'm glad that you, you raised that because the legacy of maternal mortality, uh, needs to be understood in in multiple ways and across multiple dimensions. So Kira Johnson sadly died uh, shortly after childbirth, and her stor- story provides a kind of counter narrative to the stereotype about Black women's health. So the traditional default when Black women suffer harm, either through the lack of quality of care or they die due to negligence or et cetera, is that somehow they were at fault. Their genes were at fault. How they ate, you know, was at fault. You know, how they lived was at fault. You know, that they didn't exercise enough was at fault, right? And so these have been the kind of tropes. Well, you know, that kind of trope couldn't be used in Kira Johnson's case. And in fact, in most cases, it really can't, right? So when we adjust by education and when we adjust by uh, income, and when we adjust across many factors, we find out that, you know, they're just disparities that are because of race. And so in Kira's case, she was multilingual. Kira was fluent in five or six different languages, a pilot, uh, someone who's a marathon runner, you know, the kind of person that one would say, you know, is doing all of the right things and is, you know, and perfectly situated <laughs> to carry a pregnancy to term. And unfortunately, Uh, She dies shortly after birth. And the story to unpack it is one of the failure to listen, right? So as Mm -hmm. family members were saying, look, something is wrong. She's not well. She's not, she wasn't feeling well. All these things, you know, medical personnel ignored her. And that's so typical of the story. We could talk about Jahi McMath. Many people remember that case of the black 13-year-old who went in to just have a tonsillectomy. Tonsillectomy is an in and out surgery, right? People don't die from tonsillectomies. But as this poor little girl is coughing up blood, coughing up blood by the leader, right? Being ignored. Her grandmother, who is an emergency room nurse, comes in. There's even a threat to remove 
her stepfather from the hospital because he's getting so upset. He sees his, his daughter is in medical distress. Now, this is what's interesting. So you have people who are not medically trained, but simply have empathy. Like, something's wrong. My daughter is bleeding way too much after this tonsillectomy. Well, in the end, uh, this little girl, she dies. And the case becomes known because there's a question about, well, was she brain dead? Was she really alive? The family ends up moving her uh, to New Jersey, where in New Jersey, she was considered not brain dead. In California, she was considered brain dead. But what I've urged people to do is to look beyond the kind of technicality of the status of her body, but to think about the failure to show a quality of care and compassion for the girl in such a way that it could have saved her life. So if nurses and doctors at the hospital in which she was treated had even bothered to pay attention to the parents that said she's bleeding too much and would have investigated, they would have seen in fact that there was a medical error during the surgery. And that, that uh, unfortunately the doctor who, who had performed the surgery made a mistake, right? But these mistakes end up being lethal. Or in the case of Barbara Dawson, tragic case, another case of the I can't breathe. And in this case, it's a black woman who, you know, if you look at a picture of Barbara Dawson, she looks like a black woman ready for, for church on a Sunday. And she goes to the hospital in an ambulance complaining that she can't breathe. And she's at the hospital and at some point um, on the day that she's at the hospital, they get tired of this black woman complaining that she can't breathe. And so they call the police on her, which is like, you know, you can't make that up as if the logical thing to do with a black woman who comes into the hospital saying, I can't breathe, is to call the police. But that is exactly what they do. Unbelievable. And when the police come in, they remove her oxygen. And you can hear on the audio cam, the police officer's audio cam, her saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Miss Dawson dies right outside the police car because, in fact, they arrest her. <laughs> and they cart her out to the squad car that's waiting to take Miss Dawson to jail. She's committed no crime. She is there because she can't breathe. And she collapses and she dies. She had a blood clot in her lungs. So these stories, I mean, there, there's so many that I could tell you. But again, you know, it's a failure to listen. It's a, it's a failure to have that kind of compassion. It's a failure to do the job, right? We could just say, look, if you did your jobs better, <laughs> then, you know, people would be alive. But I think at the deeper level, it's a failure to take seriously the humanity and the dignity of Black people. Absolutely. And it, and it really is that the common thread there is the not listening. And, um, you know, one of the one of the things that we have been pushing for for a long time is the recognition that part of the reason uh, that people aren't listened to is because there is no recourse uh, when tragic deaths like these occur, because the legal system is set up such that uh, if a person dies, because of medical negligence and doesn't make a lot of money, they have very, very little chance of being able to hold those medical providers accountable uh, because of a cap set in law in 1975 that says uh, a person's life is only worth $250,000 unless they had a huge income uh, uh, that was lost to their family. And the structural impact of that is that communities of color are hit the worst uh, uh -huh. when your wealth 
is the only determinant as to whether or not your life is worth something. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we see this play out in California with the cap that you mentioned. And we also see this in other cases. So you think about 9-11 and the appointment of a special master to determine how resources will be distributed to Americans who experience that horror, that that terrorism here in the United States. And, and that being also delineated according to what is your financial value and your financial value being assessed by how much did you make so that you actually see the difference, you know, in terms of how life is valued. So somehow as a, in the, in the wake of death, a CEO or a manager is perceived as being more valuable, more worthy in some ways, one could say to society than the people who made sure that their ever comfort was made. The, you know, the people who are the, you know, uh, housekeepers, um, the people who uh, bring in the food, the people who cook the food. And there's a real tragedy behind that. There are ways in which these stories like that become rationalized right, um, that it only makes sense to value uh, the person who manages the company more than the person who uh, cooked in the kitchen, but they both died the same way, right? And they b both died from the same cause. And why is it in that instance, the evaluation in terms of how the state will distribute its resources is treated in different ways? I mean, certainly the person who was the manager or the CEO has left behind uh, various kinds of resources for his or her family. And as you mentioned so rightly, there is a way in which this even further, this kind of loss even further harms more vulnerable families and communities. On that point, you're referring to the fact that um, when you are uh, calculating uh, the value of a life, um, that value is so frequently set based on um, gender and race projections of what yes. your income might have been in the future. Yes. And of course, women and people of color make less money. So their future doing projection. The Absolutely. Exactly. And it's compounded in a variety of ways, right? So it's compounded based on what it is that you're making, which may also be disparate. In fact, it's very likely to be disparate. All the data tells us, right? So it's disparate. And then that disparate then follows into the future where the compounding cofactors of racism and sexism, if you happen to be a woman of color, then further plagues you into the future, or in that case, it then lands on your family members. And so it's one of the ways in which one can, you know, create a visualization of how these harms actually inure further harm to family members that are left behind. So if you happen to be a white male and the projections are about where you are today and where you would be in the future, then your family gets the benefit of that. Not that they necessarily earned it in other cases. Are we talking about somebody earning something? But at the same time, if you happen to be the offspring of the person who was the, the cook, the delivery person, um, the, the maid, then that kind of projection then further, you know, creates the further gap and harm to their offspring. So on one hand, you have one group that's benefiting in certain dynamic ways. 
And then in the other hand, you have the offspring that are further being harmed. And we see this play out when people think about how wealth manifest and how wealth disparities uh, further align over time. And that's part of it, you know, and, and let me just circle back to the questions about health, lest folks say, well, this is the conversation about economics and not about health. <laughs> we know that the way in which people are situated economically affects their health, right? So again, getting away from this notion that it's all about their genes or that people of color just wake up somehow and they're just naturally uh, less healthy and less well than other people. But we know that the poorer that you are, the more likely that you're living in an environmentally toxic atmosphere, because we know that uh, more chemical plants and uh, companies that dump more into the atmosphere are more likely to be uh, located in places where it's low income. So already you're affected by that. It also means that you may be living near a food desert, which means that if you take, for example, the south side of Chicago, uh, it was a big deal when a Whole Foods opened up, like huge, right? Because there just aren't grocery <laughs> stores. There aren't grocery stores for blocks and miles. And we also know in those spaces, people can less rely on public transportation being regular and normal, right? So you got food deserts, you've got, you know, perhaps the absence of parks, You've got toxins in the air, and that's only beginning to scratch the surface. It's those kinds of things that end up harming people's health. And if there are serious wealth gaps, then it means that it's very difficult to move out of those places. And that's when we look at the backdrop then of a 9-11 and, you know, who gets the high payout such that people can live in nice areas, right, and safe areas where there are great schools. And who gets the minimal payout where families are stuck? Everybody experiences, you got the two parents who both experience something horrible that our nation wants to compensate them for, but one gets much less compensation and their family ends up being intergenerationally stuck in places that make it very hard to get out of and where their health just suffers. Well, um, I think we could talk for another half hour or two hours on this topic, um, but I think that is—I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, I really appreciate you helping um, shine a light on all of these issues, uh, Michelle, and hopefully um, move us move us toward writing some of this uh, this ongoing uh, ongoing injustice. It's 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 the moment, and and um, you know it's time to seize it. Well, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And yes, let's definitely expose, confront, and, and uh, work towards changing things. We're with you on that. Um, thank you, everyone, uh, for listening to the Rage for Justice report. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss us every week. Um, Michelle, how can folks find you on social media if they want to connect with you? You can find me on Twitter at michellebgoodwin.com. You can find me on Instagram in that same way. And if you want to find out what I'm doing, check out my website at michellebgoodwin.com. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, visit consumerwatchdog.org for more information or to subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next week.